you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. Sozo Church. Awesome. Well, we are in the Gospel of John. Uh, we've been here for a while. We are in John 13. We're going to jump right into the Word this morning. We've got quite a bit to cover, and I want to make sure we get through it all. So if you've got a Bible, let's go to John chapter 13. We're going to read verses 1 through 5, then we're going to jump to verse 21. So let's get a Bible, get your phone, and let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word as we turn our hearts and our attention to Him. John chapter 13, verse 1. How many people got your Bibles? How many people got your digital Bibles? We love you too. How many people trust the Sky Bible? So you're good, okay? Yeah, you're like, yeah, I don't need it. You put it up on the screen. I'm not bringing one. It's just one more thing to carry. All right, John 13, verse 1 says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had, had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now let's go ahead and jump now to verse 21. Verse 21 says, After these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you, will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain to whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Let's pray together this morning, church. Holy Spirit, we thank you, God, for your word. Come on, church, we thank you, Jesus, for your word. God, we thank you that you have not left us without your word, but you've given us your word for our good and for your glory. And so we come to your word this morning for that purpose, that we would, we would receive good from you and you would receive glory from us that we would honor you and magnify and make much of you, Jesus. And so 
To that end, God, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would breathe life upon your word, cause it to come alive in our hearing, cause it to come alive in our understanding, cause it to come alive in our living, Lord. That your word, that your word might do the work that only your word can do. That it would supernaturally, God, give us the ability to hear, the ability to receive, and the ability to respond to what it is that you are saying to us. God, don't let us leave this place the same as we came in. Whether it's our first time coming in or whether it's our 500th time coming in, God, we declare, we profess, we say we want to be more like you as we leave this place. We want to live like, walk like, talk like, love like, respond like you, Jesus, as we leave this place today. That we might fulfill the very purpose for which you have called us, to fill your creation with your image and for your glory. That the the cry of creation to see the sons of God might be answered. Have your way. We give you all of our attention and our affection. We declare you are good. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Come on, everybody said? Greet somebody around you real fast and then grab a seat. Amen, amen. As always, this is one of my favorite moments in our service because it is blatantly obvious who the extroverts and who the introverts are. All the, all the extroverts like me right now and all the introverts are glaring at me right now. Just know this, introverts, I am with you. I hate it when preachers do what I just did to you. I do. I hate it. You're welcome. Um, it's been an interesting little season here. Um, and and I've, I've just been thinking about, uh, has anybody else been kind of daydreaming lately about, um, I don't want to talk about it, but let's just talk about it real fast. Can we just daydream about how things used to be? <laughs> Dude, you don't even have to be more than a year old right now to say that. That used to be something that you had to kind of have some road behind you to talk like. But now, like, anybody who's, like, two years old can be like, I miss how it used to be. I don't know why, but this week I've just been missing a particular thing. I've been missing movie theaters. Remember movie theaters? Remember movie theaters? They were great. They weren't, but we, we can remember them as being great. Um, really, they were miserable before all of this. Um, but I, I've been thinking about movies. I don't, I don't know why. I've just been, been thinking about this lately. And uh, I, was, I was thinking through kind of some of the movies that have been coming out lately. And, and I don't know if you've noticed the trend that's kind of happened in movies. This trend of origin movies for villains. Like we're, we've run out of stories apparently to tell about good guys. So we're just going to start telling stories about the bad guys. Uh, this is weird. I mean, if, you, if you think about this, uh, there was movies Disney kind of made Maleficent, which is the, the for those of you who don't know, the bad guy in The Sleeping Beauty, right? She was the bad gal. He's a bad gal. That's more politically correct. Bad gal. Bad, bad person bad birthing person. Um, so uh, we have Maleficent, right? If you want to go down the, the comic book road, we've got Joker, we've got Venom. 
if you really want to get really specific about it, I mean, really, go, go even back even further. All the Star Wars prequels were really the, the origin story for the, for the villain of that story, right? Darth Vader's backstory. But here's the one that finally, for me, just being transparent here, if you liked it, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not judging you at all. Um, we finally run out of movies to the point. We finally run out of stories to the point. We made a movie about Cruella DeVille. Like, I, I, look, I can get on board with, like, hey, there's some, like, we can maybe make these, you know, villains somehow kind of, uh, we, we don't understand them. We don't understand kind of what was happening in their lives, and so we can make them somehow relatable and maybe even feel sorry for them. But you're talking about Cruella DeVille. This is a puppy murderer. <laughs> and we're like, no, that seems like a good story to tell. Let's understand her motivation. I'm just going to love with you. You can love it if you like it, but I don't want to know the motivation of a puppy murderer. I'm good. And Disney's like, you want to pay $30 to watch it at home? I'm like, nope, I'm good. You can just keep that one on the $30 thing forever. I don't ever need to see it. I don't understand it. And I bring that up partially because this morning I want to look at, 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 at the bad guy. I want, to, I want us to take some time. I told you we were going to do this. I promised you we were going to do this. We're going to look at Judas this morning. And, and what I want to say is this is not meant to be a villain backstory to try to get you to relate to him. This is not a morning where I really even, the truth is this, I really don't even want to look at Judas. What I really want to look at this morning is, is I want to look at the Redeemer and his rebel. I want us to look at Jesus. Come on, somebody. I want us to see Jesus, but, but, but in the story of, of the washing of the disciples' feet in this, this chapter 13, what we see is we see Jesus put up against or juxtaposed or in light of those that he interacts with in this story. So over the next few weeks, we're going to look this week at Judas. We're going to look at Peter. We're also going to look at John and how they responded and reacted to Jesus. So let's look this morning. Come on. How many people want to see Jesus this morning? So let's look at Jesus. As we look at Jesus, the lens through which I want us to see Jesus this morning is Jesus Christ. Come on. The inviting, redeeming one. In the story, that's what we see Jesus doing. He's, he's, he's inviting them into a new level of intimacy. He's working for their redemption. We've looked a lot at this, so I'm going to kind of do a little bit of overview, a little bit of reminder. What we see is that Jesus in this story humbly served his, his disciples out of love for them. He was humble, come on, he, he was a servant, and he loved them. We see this in this story. We see this as it plays out. If you, if you want to kind of dive into that more deeply, if you want to kind of understand that at a better level, just look back over the last several weeks we've been together. We spent several weeks. We spent a week actually on each one of those, his love, his servanthood, and his humility. We saw how he left his place in heaven, how he left his place at the, the head of the table, and he came down. He was humble. He became human. He became one of us. How he served. He served at the dinner, certainly by washing their feet, but ultimately we saw that everything that Jesus did, come on, in his coming was for our service, was for our good. And that his motivation, his reason for doing that was because he loves us. Amen? You are the object. I want to say this every day for the rest of my life to believers. You are the object of divine affection. And so we see this in Jesus. But as we, as we look at Jesus, as we kind of rewind, we're kind of, we're kind of zooming in by, by backing out and looking at everything. What, what, what struck me is just how boringly consistent Jesus is. 
Consistency, come on, let, I'm just, let's just level for a second. Consistency is not sexy. But as you get older, come on, you recognize just how attractive consistency is. Just being consistent. Man, my wife and I served as, 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 as youth pastors and young adult pastors for about 12 years, so we, we pastored a lot of inconsistent, inconsistent, unstable people. They're called teenagers. Literally, science now tells us that, that some, when, when puberty starts in the life of a teenager, a chemical floods their brain and splits their brain in half. So that their, their, their emotions and their ability to, produce, to, to process logic have difficulty communicating. In essence, and I don't say this in any belittling way, and if you struggle with this, I'm not trying to make fun of this, but ultimately, if you talk to, to most uh, modern psychologists when it comes to understanding teenagers, they say you can understand a teenager by studying bipolarism. I'm liberating some parents this morning. Your teenager is bipolar. They'll probably grow out of it. <laughs> but Jesus is just... Man, he is just boringly consistent in everything that he says and everything that he does. What's he consistent with? He tells us over and over again. He is about, come on, his father's business. The first time we see Jesus, he's about 12 years old, and he's at the temple, and when his parents get mad at him for running off, he says, I have to be, come on, about my father's business. But then consistently throughout the rest of his life, he says things like, I only do what I see the father doing. I do everything I do by the authority of my Father. I do everything that I do for the glory of my Father. He is just boringly, faithfully consistent. And therefore, because of that, Jesus is supremely interested in the redemption, reconciliation, and reclamation of his people. I'm going to say that again because you didn't hear me. Jesus is supremely interested, the, the, the goal of Jesus in all that he says, in all that he does, in being about his father's business, what he's trying to do is do all that is necessary, all that is needed to, to, to redeem his people, to reconcile his people, and to reclaim his people. What do I mean by that? What I mean is this, by redemption, what I mean by redemption is this, to deliver them for, or sorry, to deliver them from the sin and shame of our rejection and rebellion against him. We have rejected and rebelled as, as, a, as a people, as a, as, a, as a totality of humanity. We have rejected God as God and we have rebelled against his good plans and purposes in our life. The Bible simply calls that sin. And from that sin, we end up in shame. And Jesus comes and says, I'm going to do everything necessary to redeem you out of that sin and out of that shame. To conquer your rebellion and to reject your rejection and, and to, to redeem you out of that. But the good news doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, hey, I'm going to redeem you. What he says is, I'm going to redeem you, and then I'm going to reconcile you. So if redemption is we are, we are delivered from sin and shame, re reconciliation is delivered to right relationship with the Father. You tracking with me this morning? Are you awake this morning? Can you say amen? So we are reconciled. To right relationship with the Father. The way I put this is this. We go from being enemies of God, come on, to being the family of God. 
So the good news is that you're delivered from something, but you're not just delivered from it and dangling out here in nothingness. You're delivered from the bondage that you're in, and you're brought into the family of God, back into right relationship with God. Jesus is obsessed with your redemption and your reconciliation, but the good news doesn't stop there. He says he's also obsessed with your reclamation. So if, 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 if redemption is deliverance from sin and shame, reconciliation is deliverance to the Father, reclamation is deliverance for our divinely designed purpose. You are not just delivered from punishment, from sin, from shame. Let's get, let's get old school Bible. From hell, you are delivered to, come on, heaven. You're delivered to right relationship and right standing with Jesus. But you're not just delivered from hell and for heaven. You are delivered for the very purpose for which you were created. Everyone take a breath right now. Take a breath. If you are breathing, you have a purpose in him. How can I say that? Because I believe, come on, the Bible teaches very clearly we serve a God who does not waste. He invests wisely what is his. Your breathing is his, according to the scripture, which means if he's still investing that breath in you, he still has a purpose for you. If not, you would just stop breathing. You would just suffocate, fall over dead, and we'd go, what happened to Jerry? We'd go, he doesn't have a purpose anymore. <laughs> we are... We are in Christ, redeemed, reconciled, and reclaimed. You have a purpose on this planet. That purpose is very simple. To fill God's creation with his image for his glory. Now, now the way that God uniquely puts you together to do that is going to be unique to you. But the purpose is all the same. You don't have to wonder or wander to find your purpose. You were, you were built, you were designed as an image bearer who could make more image bearers. Fill all of creation with his image and for his glory. This is so important because so many believers uh, act like and, and therefore kind of project this image, I love you, that Christianity is, I love you, boring. And I love you, Christianity is not boring, you are boring. Jesus and the gospel-centered life is not boring. You are boring. If you think following Jesus is boring, go talk to the Morrises after church and repent. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to just talk about it for just a second. They are not going to Tanzania to preach the gospel because they are super Christian special people. They're just stupid enough to believe Jesus... When he said, go into the world and preach the gospel, that he was talking about them. That's it. So if you're willing to admit how dumb you are, you can go do that too. Jesus is, is working and has worked and has accomplished everything necessary. He has is, he is fully and finally made a way for you to be redeemed, reconciled, and reclaimed. That is yours in him. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to strive for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove that you somehow are good enough or you don't have to merit it at all. It is yours. He's waiting around wondering what you're going to do with it. That's what Jesus is doing. 
That's what he's about. So Jesus, as our teacher, as our redeemer, as our God, as our king, calls us into what he is doing. And this is so important. As, as, as the reason I wanted to kind of give this, this viewpoint before we jump in and talk about Judas is this. And, and I want to I say something. I need you to, what do we say in, 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 to little kids that put on your listening ears? It is fundamentally impossible. If Jesus is who he said he is, if he is God, it is fundamentally impossible for you or I to know him completely. Did you hear what I said? He's an infinite God. He had no beginning. He will have no end. The complexity of who he is is beyond us. Ladies, you'll have all, this one won't help you. But guys, it's like the difference between you and your wife. You are very simple. She is very complex. <laughs> it's that times infinity between all of us as humanity. Come on, and God, he is far more complex than we ever could possibly imagine. The depths and the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God, the Bible tells us, are un searchable. So that is a statement I want to make sure we understand. It is impossible to know God completely. This has led a lot of people into an error that I want to tension here. So it's, is it impossible to know God completely? But that does not mean it is impossible to know God correctly. You cannot know him completely, but you can know him, you must know him correctly. Just because he is infinitely complex, that does not mean that, that he is all things that anyone has ever said were God. He has made himself known to us in the person of Jesus. What he has revealed to us, you can know for sure and for certain. I say that because we're going to now look at Judas Iscariot. And I'm calling him the intriguing, rebellious one. If, if, if you can allow yourself to actually contemplate and ponder Judas for a second, he becomes very intriguing. Because he's one of the twelve. He's not just some random dude who betrayed Jesus. He's one of, kind of, you could call it the inner circle of Jesus. We see in the life and the ministry of Jesus, there were sort of, uh, you can call them layers or, or levels of those who followed Jesus. There were, there were people, right, the biggest number we could get is all the people who would want to go hear Jesus if they were able to. Right? If Jesus kind of came around to their town, they would, they would rush out and be a part of this giant, huge herd of people that would listen to Jesus. Then there was sort of a, a crowd inside of that crowd that seemed to follow him around. We seemed to get this number of roughly 5,000 uh, uh, adult males that seemed to kind of follow Jesus wherever he went. And then from inside that, there was this other layer of somewhat, some, the numbers roughly usually about 120 that seemed to be more devoted followers of Jesus, maybe disciples of Jesus. Then inside that, there was the 70. Then inside that, there was the 12. Then inside that, there was the 3. Then inside that, there was the 1. And Judas is one of those 12. And yet he, see, he, he betrays Jesus. So I want to I look at Judas this morning. He's a, he's a puzzle, lots of questions that are left unanswered to him. 
And so I want to just be honest. We're going to look at some explicit things that we know from the text of the Gospels. We're also going to look at some implied things from the text of the Gospels this morning. And we're going to try to paint a, a compelling picture that might help us as we seek to be a follower of Jesus as we look at this intriguing, rebellious follower of Jesus. Now, just real fast aside, real quick, just for those of you whose minds are going there or who might have questions about this, I want to do two things. I want to answer your question and I want to invite you to come talk to me if you have more questions. No, we are not going to talk at all this morning about the the, 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 the letter, the, the codex called, sometimes called the Gospel of Judas. Uh, if you don't know about this, check Facebook real fast. You don't need to listen. It doesn't matter. It, it is a document that has a, a very, very, very questionable heritage. It is not biblical at all. No one would say it's biblical. No scholar that I can find would at all claim that it holds the same level of, uh, of authority as, as the scriptures. This is not one of those books that the church tried to hide. Uh, literally, it was lost to antiquity. We have one partial copy that we don't even know if it's really authentic because of its backstory, because of its uh, what was called in, in document studies, its heritage. So there's lots of questions about that. We're not going to deal with it. If you want to talk about it, I've studied it a lot. I was very intrigued by it when it came out, uh, have, have read it. We can talk later, but we're not going to talk about it this morning. So if you were hoping or worried, don't. <laughs> don't be hopeful. Don't be worried. Um, so we're going to look at Judas. I want to look at him. I want to see this. So, so let, me, let me talk first about some things that are explicit that we know from the text. First is this, that Judas only called Jesus rabbi, never Lord. As you look at the life of Jesus, you never see a, a, a moment of, 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 of him worshiping or of him declaring a, a deeper level of faith than just a rabbi. Again, we, we've talked about this. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but just so that we're all kind of together. The, Jesus culturally was a rabbi. He had disciples. Rabbis were those that had disciples. The job of the disciple was to be with their rabbi so they could be like their rabbi. So the rabbi was trying to reproduce himself and his disciples. Jesus uses verbiage, is called rabbi, never corrects people. Jesus, in his day, was a rabbi. Is that all that Jesus was? No. But was he a rabbi? Yes. <clears throat> so Judas here never calls Jesus Lord. He never calls him God. Therefore, it's, it's safe to sort of imply that Judas had a humanistic view of Jesus. And out of that humanistic view of Jesus, out of that sort of limited understanding, limited perspective, we see this, that Judas did. We see this in the text. Judas was offended by Jesus. Judas gets offended by Jesus. We see this in two places. If you want to jot this down, if you want to kind of go through and study this on your own, we see in Mark 14, verse 4, and in John 12, verse 4, these are the accounts of, of a woman we know from John. It's Mary washing Jesus' feet and anointing his feet with oil. In, in Mark 4, 14, it explicitly says that somebody got offended, or the word it uses is indignant over this action. And here's what you need to understand. Yes, there was, <clears throat> yes, there was anger and frustration and offense directed toward the woman for doing this, but in reality, what was where the offense lied was in John, it tells us that it's Judas is the one who was offended, and he's offended at Jesus for allowing this act to take place. Judas gets offended 
at Jesus. This again is evidence that Judas saw Jesus only from a humanistic, limited perspective. That kind of view, when you see Jesus simply as rabbi, simply as a good teacher to follow, simply as a human with some good ideas, what you then open yourself up to is the error of humanism. Where Jesus is only judged based upon a, a, a terrestrial, physical, I can say it this way, a, a, a tangible, practical level. And so when we only see Jesus from a humanistic perspective, when we only see him in light of what he can or, what he, or how he can influence and affect our, our tangible, rational, industrial, temporal, let me say it this way, terrestrial lives, then we're in danger of falling into one of the two ditches in the human camp. Now, if you like me, I hope you still do at the end, but I love you enough to make you not like me this morning. Here are the two ditches. Both of them stem from the same view where we see Jesus incorrectly, and we only want to see him as how he can affect the here and now. We either then land in the conservative camp or in the progressive camp. And both camps are wrong. I'd rather you leave happy than stay angry. I think Judas, now we're going to get into some implied stuff here, but I want to see how he can be a picture, and we could see the motivations of either, the, 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 from the humanistic, either falling into the conservative bend, come on somebody, or the progressive bend. Let me say it this way before I get into this. You are not called, you are not called to be a conservative Christian or to be a progressive Christian. You are called to belong singularly and solely to Jesus. Nothing good has ever happened when Christians merge themselves into either of those camps. I didn't think I would get a lot of amens this morning. I'm fine with it. I'm kind of liking the stairs. <laughs> let's jump into this. Let's see, let's see how, how Judas can be a picture for us and warn us against these things. So, so we don't know a ton about Judas, but we do know that he's called Judas what? Iscariot. Iscariot literally means dagger man. So if you want to like hip up your Bible reading, just when you read Judas Iscariot, you can read Judas Dagger man. Uh, Iscariot means dagger man. This was, this was the name of a group of ultra-zealot people. These were like hyper, hyper, hyper conservative people. These were the ultimate kind of group that, that beyond just normal zealots, we know that there's another disciple that was of Jesus named Simon the Zealot. That would have been like he would have thought he was a low-level guy compared to an Iscariot person. This isn't his last name. This is, this is designed to sort of identify him with this group of people. They were called dagger men because literally they carried around little knives. These were concealed carry conservative people. 
Now, they didn't carry around a concealed carry weapon because they were trying to protect themselves and others. No, literally why they carried around concealed weapons, little daggers, was if they thought from something you said that you were a traitor to the nation of Israel, a, a Jewish traitor that you were, you were working with or working for or working in conjunction with Rome, they would literally try to get you into a back alley and just stab you to death. That's why they carried that. These are serious people. They wanted to see Israel restored to some, some, some previous state that they thought was some previous state of glory. I'm going to say it this way, and we can still be friends. The, the, the Iscariots wanted to make Israel great again. They had some view of the way their nation used to be, that they thought there was some glory day. So, so they, they had two main things. The Iscariots believe Israel needed two primary things to happen. I'm going somewhere with this. Just keep tracking with me. First is this. They thought that they needed to, to uh, return to God as in the past. They said, hey, hey, our nation has, has been corrupted by this outside influence of Rome. We're not following God the way we should. We're not living the way we should. It's all Rome's fault. We need to turn back to God. We need to follow the way we used to be. They had this romantic ideal of the past, some golden, glorious past that they imagined. The problem with this is Israel is consistently shown in the Old Testament at sucking following God's rules. You can sum up the entire Old Testament by saying like Israel fails over and over and over again. And just when you think they can't fail any bigger, they prove you wrong. That's what the Old Testament is all to show us. But yet somehow these just believed if they tried harder, they would do better this time. This is, this is often what conservatives think. Well, no, 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 it failed before because we just didn't try hard enough. We'll try harder next time. I've said this for years. If you could do it, you would have already done it by now. Such an uplifting pastor. Just give up. <laughs> it's like the phrase, you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Who in the world came up with that phrase? Because if you're on the ground and you pull on your shoes, nothing happens. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. They believed that they needed to return to God as they had in the past. This view denies their need for divine dependence. Somehow implies that they're able to accomplish it on their own and if they can just return enough to some moral state, some religious state, some better state, then that would somehow be it. The second thing they believed needed to happen is that, that Israel needed to fight a holy war with Rome. So once they returned back to God, they said then God would be with them and they could all take up arms and fight off their oppressors and fight off those keeping them down and throw off the wicked, sinful, horrible, awful people that, that were oppressing them. They saw Rome and anyone who associated with Rome as their enemy and blamed Rome and their, uh, their, their, their excessive evil culture for all of Israel's transgressions, for all of Israel's problems. See, so what you got to understand about, about this hyper-religious, hyper-conservative kind of group is these are the kind of people that tuck in their polo shirt into their khaki pants, right? And anybody who doesn't dress that way is just morally corrupt. They wanted their women to have buns and long denim dresses. 
And all, if, if you don't do that, if you, have, if you allow any influence from Rome into your life, you're somehow corrupted. And so what we need to do is we need to all get back to some, some idealistic view of how the past used to be. And then we need to go physically to, to, to war against Rome for our independence and our freedom and all of that and fight and get that back. And then Israel will be an independent nation again and everything will be awesome. And we'll just do better than we've ever done before, despite the fact that we've always failed every time we've tried to do this. This view, this, this view that Rome is the problem denies Israel's sin. It denies that they got themselves into this position. Rome didn't come and conquer them. The, the, the Old Testament taught them God gave them over to the nations. Because of their failings, because of this, God said, you need to learn. So I'm going to teach you because I love you. But this view denies their sin and the need for a spiritual deliverer. So if this view is true, if, if this is kind of who Judas was, then perhaps what Judas was doing in his betrayal is simply this. He saw the triumphal entry, right? We all remember this. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Everyone cheers. Everyone receives him. So Judas may have been thinking, hey, we've turned back to God. Step number one done. We've returned back to God. We're all excited. Okay, Jesus, it's time to start the war. He could have believed that this rabbi that he was following, this is what he was going to do. He probably believed Jesus is with me on this. It's interesting to me. Just we're, we, I love you. I've never once made public my position politically about anything. And we have a church because of that that is, is very blended when it comes to political viewpoints. That's the goal that I had in not sharing. Because once, once I get up and talk about mine, then you think if you disagree with me, you're not allowed to be here. And that's just stupid. Because Jesus unites us more than anything divides us. But here's what I find interesting. I'm going to not look around the room because I've talked to some of y'all. So, um... What I find interesting is that, is that I have had the same conversation with people on both sides of the aisle, where you'll share your political view on whatever given issue, and you'll be like, I know you don't talk about Jesus, but I know we're, you were like this thing. And I have this with, with progressive people, and I have this with conservative people, I have this with Republican people, I have this with Democrat people, I have this with socialist people, I have this with libertarian people, and you're all just like, no, yeah, we're good. Why do I say that? Because I think that's probably how Judas was. Jesus never said explicitly what his plans were, so I'm just going to imply, I'm going to take what I like from what he said, I'm going to selectively edit out, come on somebody, what I don't like, and I'm just going to believe this. So, so think about this, if this is Judas, then he sees Israel turn back to God in this welcoming Jesus as the Messiah, and now he thinks, okay, it's time to go to war. But he's, he's a little, conservatives can be this way, he's a little impatient. I love you. So he thinks, well, I'll just set it up so Jesus has to have a call to arms. I'll get Jesus arrested. And then, of course, Jesus, because he's only thinking humanistically, Jesus will call all of our, all the disciples together. He'll call all this 5,000-member army together, and we'll fight Rome and all the corrupt religious system that's in bed with Rome, and we'll, we'll, get, we'll finally be, we'll drag everybody behind an alley and just stab them to death, and it'll be great. Because Judas did not see Jesus correctly. If this view is true, 
then perhaps Judas was trying to force Jesus to take military violent action. So that's if he was the conservative. That may have been his motives. We see this, I must be real with you, we see this in conservative people today. Thinking they can somehow force God into fighting some battle. If I just go out and throw down, then God will show up on my side. Misses the point of what Jesus is actually doing in the earth. Now, let me, let me be clear. Let me just... I, Were there injustices happening to God's people by the Roman Empire? Yes and amen. Was God interested in delivering his people from that oppression? Yes and amen. Are the people of God, are, are the, are, are, is, is Israel, I want to be clear on this, I want to be careful, is Israel still under Roman occupation? Nope. So did God deliver them? Yes. But was that Jesus' primary goal? No. What was Jesus boringly consistent about? The redemption, the reconciliation, and the reclamation. And what happened when a bunch of people got saved, a bunch of people got brought back into right relationship with God, and a bunch of people started living their lives to fill the earth with the image of God? The kingdom advanced, and Rome was defeated. But when you see it wrong, when you think only terrestrially and not eternally, then you think the only weapons we have to fight against this oppression, against this tyrannical, controlling government, is somehow the physical weapons that we have. So you start packing around a gun and threaten to shoot anybody that disagrees with you. I love you. So that's if... That's if this side, now that I've just made all of the conservatives stare at their feet for the morning, let's talk about the progressives. You all are all happy right now. Prepare to hate the next 10, 15 minutes. <laughs> so so let, let, me, let, me, let me back up to, to this real fast. Judas Iscariot. So what that means is either, one of two things, either he was a part of the Iscariots, but we know explicitly from the text that his father was. So it says Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. That would definitely mean, from the text, that his dad was one of these ultra-zealots. Now, it could be, like a lot of people, right, that's how their dad was, so they, that's how they are. But how many of you know, come on, come on, let's talk for a second. How many of you, how many of you know the swing? Right, you're raised, people are raised by hyper-conservative, hyper-ultra-zealot people, and that's sort of forced upon their kids, and so what do their kids do? swing all the way this way. It could be that that's what happened to Judas because we know this other thing about Judas. Judas was the only Judean disciple. Do you know this? Of the 12, 11 of them were from Galilee. Judas was from Judea. Now, we, we, this, this is sort of lost on us as we just sort of skim across the text. But let me, let me explain this. Judeans were from an urban culture. Galileans were from a rural culture. Literally, we, we have this from codexes, from texts at the time, from, from not texts like young people, not texts like this, texts like documents. We used to write on paper. 
Um, back in the olden days, like a few years ago. Um, <laughs> we, have, we have codexes, we have scrolls, we have written uh, uh, you know, or communications that literally people from Judea used terms, if I was going to transliterate it to today, they, Judeans called Galileans backwoods hillbillies. They were like, they were sort of seen as like the, the kind of un, unprogressive, sort of the, the, the backwards kind of, they don't really understand, they don't really, they're sort of stuck in their ways. So this would have meant that, Ju, that, that, Ju, that Judas saw these Galileans that way. It may have led him to sort of feel like an outcast from the rest of the, the, the other 11. They're all, they all kind of share the same kind of rural culture. It could be, and I, I'm, I'm, again, I'm going to be clear. We're speculating here, but give me a little rope, and I promise you that there's something good will come from it. I'm not, I want to be clear. I'm not claiming this is absolutely what happened. I'm saying we don't have clarity, so we can sort of draw from this, and I think there's some benefit for this. Just like we can see, hey, maybe Judas was hyper-conservative. We can also see here and go, hey, maybe he was raised by a dad that way, but they moved to Judea, and he was more influenced by urbanism. Classically, throughout all of history, the more urban a place is, the more progressive they are. Have you ever noticed this? Let's, let's, let's look at Spokane versus Seattle. We're growing to be more urban, and how many of you have noticed, if you've been here a long time, our city as it's getting bigger gets more and more progressive. This is not a statement of judgment, this is a statement of fact, I love you. Right, like the smaller the town is, typically the more conservative it is. The bigger the city, the more liberal. If you want to think people are crazy and you're conservative, go to Seattle. If you want to think people are crazy and you go to Seattle and that's not enough, just drive a little way south and go to Portland. Mm, got all kinds of questions. My, like, my most, my most progressive friends are like, I don't get what's going on in Portland right now. And I'm like, well, you're on the train. <laughs> Might be a few cars back, but the engine's heading the same way, buddy. So it could be that he was more influenced by his environment, hello somebody, than by his family. And so would this then lead Judas to feel superior to the other disciples. Like he somehow has, he's more educated, he's more, he's more refined. He kind of understands things that they probably don't. They're simple backwater, backwoods, hillbillies. They just don't get it. He's probably like, look, it's not their fault. They, they probably live in a town like, or in an area, you know, like Montana, where there's more sheep than people. And the sheep are friendlier. My favorite description of Montana was Montana is the state where the men are men and so are the women. Um, they say that in Portland too, but for a different reason. Um, just want to make sure I'm offending everybody equally this morning. Equal opportunity offender. So could it be because Judas had this air of superiority? I mean, remember, he's also put in charge of the money, so he's given this place of prominence. Some people, some people, I, I don't know whether I agree with this or not, but some people look at this text and look at the way that the interactions take place and the order of things, and they say that, that and this, was, we, this is known culturally, that in these sort of feasts, they would set up tables of three to four people around one table, and they'd have multiple tables around the room. 
I know I just bummed a bunch of you out. You thought they all sat like in a sitcom all on one side of a table, like in all the paintings of Jesus at the Last Supper. Not historically accurate. They were lounging. They were sort of laying around. And if you look at the text, it could be read like this. That there was a table with Jesus. And we know John was at Jesus' table, right? So that would have been the prominent, the head table. And it looks like Judas is at that table too. Because it doesn't say Jesus dipped his morsel in the, in the cup and then got up and walked across the room and gave it to Judas. Just as he dipped it and handed it to him. From the order of things, it actually looks like Peter, the guy we think is the big head honcho. G- Peter's the last one mentioned about feet washing, which means that maybe Peter was actually at the lowest table. So could it be that Judas had this air of superiority, thinking he had, listen, listen, let me track with me, thinking he had a better, a deeper, a more, a more full understanding of what was really going on, that he somehow had a better perspective than the rest of them, that he was privy to sort of a, a secret knowledge. Ultimately, what this would lead him to is something that looks a lot like modern American post-Christian deconstructionism. Where he, you know, these, guys, these backwater hillbillies think Jesus is some god. Jesus never said that. He never, he, never, he never explicitly said he was God. These people are just stupid hillbilly idiots. Man, no, they don't understand really what Jesus is. He's just a rabbi like everybody else. Sure, he's my favorite rabbi, but he's just a rabbi. No reason to go beyond this. No reason to think beyond this. The problem with this sort of thinking, this, the problem with deconstructionism is this. I love you. If this is you and you're in that camp, I'm not trying to chase you away. I'm trying to open your eyes to see what's going on. Deconstructionism quickly leads to destructionism, where we just want to burn the whole thing down. We think we have access to some secret knowledge. We think we have access to some unique perspective because of our elevated status in society. We've progressed past our backwater, hyper-conservative parents. They're just dumb, and they're just, I mean, if you think about it, right, the word progressive to, to conservatives, that sounds negative. But to a, somebody who that's appealing to, progression is good, right? Don't we all want to progress? Don't we want to get better? Do we want to move past? Well, hey, we're going to have to kind of break down some of these, these barriers that conservatism has put in our way. And so we begin to deconstruct things. And if, if this is true, if this is, if this is the path that he was on, then it totally makes sense that he would be offended at Jesus receiving worship, receiving all these people, cheering for him, because Judas would see him as just a rabbi. And so now Judas, his motives are now to say, hey, this is a dangerous guy leading people astray trying to pull people back into some weird conservatism. No, I'm going to go turn him in to my team. Come on, the, 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 the progressive bunch of people in authority in the temple, and we're going to shut this thing down. He's deconstructed to the point of now saying we need to demolish, we need to, we need to destroy. But this view lacks the necessary dimension of Jesus' supremacy because of his divinity. It denies our, uh, in our unregenerate state, our inability to see him accurately. Judas missed it on who Jesus is. 
Judas missed that Jesus was coming to redeem, to reconcile, and to reclaim his people. It led Judas to believe he was doing a righteous thing by stopping Jesus. Now, here, here's, here's where I want to make sure we get to, and we'll land the plane. Regardless of either one of these errors, are you tracking with me? Whether he fell into the conservative camp or the progressive camp or some, you know, unique Starbucks blend of the two. We know this explicitly from the text, that this error opened him up to the influence of supernatural evil in an unseen realm. I want, I want to pastor you for a second. Give me a second to pastor you. I know I had to lay a lot of track this morning. Please don't lose me right now. Regardless of which camp you fall into, you need to recognize that what's behind that is a supernatural evil in an unseen realm. If you, if you give yourself, if you give your identity and your security and your felicity to one of these camps, if you align yourselves with one of them, you need to understand there is evil behind those things trying to control you. When, 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 I don't know what to call the last year and a half other than just insanity. So let's just go with that. With when the insanity began, if you were with us, you remember I said to you, I didn't say to you, I said through a camera to you, that, that, that the one thing I knew was that everybody has an agenda and everyone was going to use the insanity to try to advance their agenda. And I'm saying that, I'm putting myself in that camp like everybody else. My hope for the midst of all of this, and I hope your hope in the midst of all of this, is that the gospel is preached, disciples are made, and the kingdom is advanced. I have an agenda. There it is. But there, is, and I believe, come on, come on, I believe the Spirit of God, unseen supernatural good is behind that. Well, that means anything that's not that is also being fueled by an unseen supernatural entity, by unseen supernatural forces, and they are evil. I know we're not allowed to say good and evil anymore, but the Bible does. We're going to pick Bible words. There is unseen. We think, well, we live in America. There's no demons here. We laugh, but we live that way. We give our eyes and our ears, our hearts and our minds to just absolutely jacked up ideologies. And I, I talked about the extremes of both camps, but how many of you realize there's a spectrum on both ends? And I didn't even, let's come on, let's be real, I didn't even get to the end of the spectrum on either side. Judas here, it explicitly says that first the devil had already put these things into his thinking, and then it, it explicitly says that Satan was inside of him because of this. And I've shown you from the text, either one could be true. We don't know. It's left ambiguous, I think, for a reason. To guard us against either one. But what we need to realize is, see, if, if you're in one of these camps, you go, yep, people in the other camp, they're open to demonic influence. So are you. 
What we need to see is this, simply this. Satan is at work in Judas just as he was in Eden, just as he was in the garden, to sow doubt about the goodness of God. If he's in the conservative camp, he's saying, hey, he's going to leave you under Roman occupation. Jesus is not going to deliver you. Force his hand. Make him fight a battle. If he's over in this camp, he said, he is leading people astray. He is stopping the natural progression of the world. He is not helping in human progress. Shut him down. He's not good. Has God really said? Did God really say? No. 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 Demonic, satanic influence in both conservative and progressive. Both try to limit the physical, the terrestrial, the temporal, and fail to see the eternal. Both misunderstand kingdom over country. You are a citizen of a kingdom that cannot be shaken if you are in Christ. So hear me now and remember this later. When an event happens in the world and something inside of you shakes, that is the goodness of God showing you an area of your life that is not rooted in the kingdom. When your guy loses and you think the world's going to hell in a handbasket now, your thinking is not rooted in the kingdom. When your guy wins and you think heaven has come to earth, your thinking is not rooted in the kingdom. Because the incumbent, regardless of who wins and who loses, whether it was legitimate or not, the incumbent is still on the throne. And he's not running for re-election. He won already. No recount. Here's where I want to land. Talked a lot about Judas Iscariot, the intriguing, rebellious one. But that's not who I want you to see this morning. What I want you to see is Jesus Christ, the inviting, redeeming one. Because here's, here's what you missed at the beginning. The message title was not the Redeemer and the Rebel. The message title was the Redeemer and his Rebel. Judas belongs to Jesus. And here's the part that messes me up every time I let myself actually go there. Jesus invited, Jesus welcomed Judas into the 12. Jesus washed Judas's feet. Which means whether you are hyper conservative and being controlled by demonic things, or whether you are hyper progressive and being controlled by demonic things, or anywhere in the middle and being influenced by demonic things, you can belong to Him. He is what you need. You don't need to be a conservative Christian. You don't need to be a progressive Christian. You need to belong to Jesus and find all of your identity and all of your security and all of your felicity in Him and in Him alone. He and He alone is the only hope for you and therefore the only hope for your city and the only hope for your family and the only hope for the state and the only hope for this region and country and world. It's only and always Jesus. He's who you need. 
I don't care whether you know where you fall on the spectrum of conservative or progressive because it doesn't matter. You need the Redeemer. You need Jesus. Let's stand to our feet. I know this morning was definitely a family talk. I know this morning was definitely, if you're here and you're just trying to figure out Christianity, welcome to the show. Um, <laughs> here's what I need you to hear. I need you to hear what I said at the end. I don't care whether you identify politically, morally, socially as progressive or conservative. I don't care. Listen, both of you, all of you, need Jesus. If you progress your progressiveness to the fullest progression of its progression, you're still not redeemed, you're still not reconciled, and you're still not reclaimed. You need to repent and believe the gospel because Jesus and Jesus alone is your hope. And if you're here and you are the most conservative conservative that conserves, you cannot tuck your polo shirt into your khakis deep enough. You cannot carry a big enough concealed weapon. You cannot own enough AR-15s. You cannot make America great enough again ever to save your soul. You need to repent and believe the gospel. The only hope for you and your family is Jesus. This is not a call in any way, shape, or form to abandon your beliefs about how the gospel should change the world. This is a call back to the gospel has to be the engine that's changing the world. Or we're just swinging the pendulum, church. Regardless of where you are, you need to repent and believe the gospel. Repentance and belief, simple thing. Repentance is admitting and abandoning the error in your life, the sin, the shame in your life. And belief does not mean mentally agreeing with or declaring that something is true. No, biblical belief is this, that you would embrace and entrust your life to Jesus. And the Bible says the instant that happens, the moment that happens, in, the, in less than a nanosecond, you go from being the enemy of God to the family of God. In an instant, by the gift of that repentance, you are redeemed, you are reconciled, and you walk in reclamation. You go from being a caterpillar to being a butterfly. You go from being limited to only your ability to walk to liberated into an ability to fly, to do things that were never possible for you before. And if you're here this morning, I would plead with you, regardless of your background, regardless of your perspective, to repent and believe to meet Jesus, the inviting, redeeming one. I don't care how far you think you've fallen, how bad you think you've screwed up, he is the inviting redeemer. For the rest of us, if 
you, if you're walking with Jesus, if you're, if you're in relationship with Jesus, but maybe you, you've realized this morning that you've let your hope slip to some places that aren't gospel, that aren't Christ, that aren't kingdom, and I love you enough as your pastor to tell you that you need to repent. Just listen to me. I know this isn't, you're going to disagree with this, and that's fine. Wrestle with God over it. Just as much as a lost person needs to repent, you need to repent. So we're going to take some time and we're going to respond and we're going to give a chance for repentance and response. We respond here three ways, communion, contemplation, and celebration. Celebration simple. We are going to worship. We're going to lift our eyes. We're going to lift our voices and we're going to declare how good Jesus is. Amen? Contemplation. We're going to give some time just sitting before the Lord and letting him speak to us and letting him take from this what he wants to push into our hearts and give that to us. And then communion, that's two ways. First, over here at the cross, we have a group of people, a team of people that would love to stand with you and pray with you. If you're repenting this morning, if you're going through that, I would especially encourage you to go stand with somebody, make that known, whether you're repenting and believing the gospel for the first time, the 500th time, or you're a believer here that just needs to repent of allegiances to things outside of Jesus, we would love to stand with you and pray with you. The other way we commune is through communion. This gift given to us by Jesus. These tables are open to all who put their faith in Jesus. Anyone who would who would claim Jesus is welcome to take communion with us. You don't have to be a member here. You don't have to be part of a particular denomination or theological perspective. We open these to you. We take by a method known as intention, where we take a piece of bread or the white tables have gluten-free wafers and dip in the juice and partake. We also do have around the back uh, pre-packaged communion. If you're more comfortable with that in this season, we understand. So we've made uh, what I lovingly refer to as Keurig communion available for you. You're welcome to those as well. I'm going to pray we're going to respond. Holy Spirit, thank you this morning. Thank you for an opportunity to hear your voice. God, I thank you that in me this week, this message has brought correction to some of my own thinking. Thank you, Lord, that regardless of, of either how far we think we've fallen and how unredeemable we are, you are still mighty to save but also thank you, Lord, that no matter how long we think we've walked with you and how secure our understanding of you is, you are still good enough and strong enough to show us where error has slipped into our thinking. And in your love and in your grace, you bring correction to your people. Lord, bring that correction today. Lord, I ask that we would have the pleasure and the privilege of receiving your gift of repentance today. In Jesus' name, church, let's respond to the Lord.